Today on the Connected Minds podcast, I have Dr. Brian S. Hooker. He is a PhD PE and is an associate professor of biology at Simpson University in Redding, California, where he specializes in microbiology and biotechnology. He also teaches chemistry at Shasta College. Dr. Hooker has been active in the autism community since 2001. He has a 20-year-old son with autism. Basically, where Dr. Hooker kind of became famous or infamous is um, in 2013 and 2014, he worked with a CDC whistleblower. So CDC, the Center for Disease Control um, in the United States. So basically, he worked with uh, Dr. William Thompson and they exposed fraud and corruption within vaccine safety research in the CDC, which led to the release of over 10,000 pages of documents. And he is featured in the film Vaxxed as well. So he basically helped to uncover lies and corruption at the Center for Disease Control in the United States. And this is a controversial topic, I understand. A lot of us are very polarized in um, where they stand on it. And I, I myself did not really have a pro or anti kind of stance. But the what kind of has triggered me to question more is this COVID vaccine that just has been created in like the space of a year or less. And it's being pushed to people of all all ages and stages, pregnant people, pregnant women, uh, children, and it's not been tested in, in many of those populations where it's, it's actually been administered, right? Um, so there's obviously not, no long-term testing being done. And th so this kind of ma makes me question, are these authorities and institutions looking after our health as they should be? So what we discuss on the podcast with Dr. Uh, hooker is things like what are the vaccine safety tests like? What are some of the ingredients in these vaccines that are, are being injected into very, very small children with undeveloped immune systems, undeveloped detoxification capacities, things like aluminum that's been implicated in things like Alzheimer's disease, for example, um, formaldehyde, which is listed as a known human carcinogen. So there's a number of very questionable ingredients in these vaccines that I believe uh, we should not be censored and silenced to question. And what a lot of, first of all, a lot of parents out there are unaware is they don't know what's in these vaccines that their children are ta uh, taking. They're not being made aware by their doctors. Many doctors don't seem to actually know what's inside vaccines. Doctors don't really um, learn much about the science of vaccines, about the va uh, adverse events, things like that. So um, we, we can see in the, in the media that debate, there is no debate, that we're just being told vaccines are safe. But w w where's, the, where's the science to prove that? So Dr. Hooker will discuss some of that. He will talk about the vaccine injury compensation program. So basically, in case you didn't know, um, and you will, or you will find out the details later, but basically vaccines are pretty much uh, exempt from liability since 1986. So 
th these companies can't actually be held liable for for the damage caused by by a vaccine for example right so you, you learn a little bit about that which i believe more parents need to be aware of you know if 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 we are allowing our children to be injected straight into the bloodstream bypassing bypassing the gut and other mechanisms of preventing um you know like if if, if you take aluminum through the mouth you know there's a lot of ways that can get detoxified and stopped from entering the brain if you inject it directly into the bloodstream well now it's it, it's it's much closer to the brain that way you know so i think people need to be a little bit more educated on the topic the, the problem is that of education and uh i hope that this episode does does some of that you know hopefully it will prompt um prompt you to do a little bit more research now Dr. Hooker, he is a director at the Children's Health Defense, a website and nonprofit organization that I'm going to include links to. They have a lot of very good research and articles there that you can read further um, just to educate yourself a little bit more on the topics. Not, not just in terms of not just vaccines, I'm talking about children's health in general, big pharma, big food, big agriculture, uh, big tech, all, all things that should concern a parent if they want their child to grow up healthy and free in this world, right? So that's uh, a few of the things we'll discuss. We will also discuss um, Dr. Hooker's study that he, he has done some analysis and pub published it in a peer-reviewed journal where he's shown that vaccinations before one year of age uh, was associated with increased odds of developmental delays, asthma, and ear infections. So we'll discuss some of that. So uh, there's a lot to dig into, um, and that's why I'll just get straight to the guest. I just want to add one more thing. I, I kind of, near the end of the interview, I, I put my foot in my mouth a little bit. I, I stated that a paper that questions um, aluminum and uh, why it's used in vaccines and so on. I, I stated that they they cite Dr. Hooker's latest study, which was not in fact true. Uh, and then the person that wrote the the paper, it was not William Fry, as I said in the podcast. I said it's actually Richard Fry. But anyway, it's a small little detail. It was the second interview of the day. It was a long day. Um, so I just wanted to kind of correct that in case um you know there is some confusion around that but uh, small little detail anyway thank you for tuning into the podcast again please keep an open mind uh on this topic i i don't think we should blindly accept uh, this coronavirus uh stuff has basically shown we should not blindly accept interventions and vaccines uh we should ask what what is the safety testing what's inside this thing what could be the potential long-term health effects of these things we owe it to our children we owe it to our children so anyway uh hope you find the podcast interesting and informative let me know how you like it and without further ado here is dr brian s hooker today on the connecting minds podcast we have dr brian hooker brian thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much christian for having me it's a pleasure to be with you today yeah, it's it's a pleasure and an honor. Um, before we get into the 
you know, the meat and potatoes of our discussion. Can you please tell the folks listening, what is your story, your background? How did you kind of become, how do I say, famous or infamous in the world? Well, um, my, my background, my educational background is in biochemical engineering. Um, I received my PhD in 1990. And so I've been you know, immersed probably, you know, for the last 35 years or so in looking at science and medical records and, and things of that nature. So, you know, my, even, even before I got involved in the movement, which was in the early 2000s, you know, I was looking at a lot of data and a lot of information and processing that information and trying to make good scientific decisions. I'm also a university professor. So I spent a lot of my time just explaining science to non-scientists. A lot of my classes that I teach are to non-scientists. So one of the things that I really like to do is sort of break down the science so that everybody can understand it. Um, but back in uh, 1998, my son was born and uh, he did not do well with his infant vaccines until about 15 months of age. And at his 15 month checkup, he received three vaccines while having an active ear infection. And so that really sent him into a steep decline medically. He was very, very sick after that, uh, very, very sickly child. And he lost a lot of his neurological development. He actually regressed in his neurological development. And so that was back in 1998 and 1999. And my son is 23 years old now, and he's still nonverbal. Uh, he does not speak. And in fact, before his vaccinations, he had more words than he does now. And so, you know, his vaccine injury is very, very real in my family. We saw the implications of vaccine injury firsthand, um, not only with my son, but also with many, many close friends that experienced something similar to us. So um, when the United States CDC, Centers for Disease Control, got involved in the question, do vaccines cause autism? Then I was already, this was in the early 2000s, I, I was already very, very convinced that my son's developmental disabilities had been caused, especially by his 15-month vaccines. And I wanted to see what the CDC had to say. So I um, started to call them, email them. I'm a scientist, you know, I, I don't see any problem contacting other scientists. So I contacted them and asked them some very specific questions and found that the results that they were getting were dubious, you know, not only from a logical standpoint, but also from a statistical standpoint. They were just doing things that you should not do in statistics. And it seemed like the result and the, and the outcome was a foregone conclusion that they were going to find that vaccines don't cause autism. And uh, this angered me, obviously. Uh, so I continued to um, talk to the CDC scientists to the point, and they, you know, they got so aggravated with my questions that they stopped answering my emails back in 2004 and actually sent a letter to my attorney basically saying that I could no longer contact them. And my attorney just laughed at the letter and said, you know, Brian, you can contact any government official you want to at any time. You know, there's a freedom of speech and there's a freedom of access. And the CDC said to that, yeah, that's fine. You can contact us. We're not going to answer anything that you 
uh, that you initiate. So I started submitting what are called Freedom of Information Act requests back in 2004. And this was just to get a lot of the email traffic, a lot of the documentation, a lot of the reports, a lot of the data from the studies that they were using to show that vaccines didn't cause neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, especially the studies that they did in the early 2000s. So I did that for nine years. And up until 2013, I was submitting about one of these Freedom of Information Act requests or FOIA requests per month, which is the maximum that you can submit. So I was submitting these requests, getting lots and lots of information. And then suddenly out of the blue, uh, one of the scientists that I was in touch with, uh, Dr. William Thompson, contacted me privately. And he contacted me on my private uh, cell phone. He used his private cell phone and he started sharing information with me. And over the period of about nine months, shared about 10,000 pages worth of secret documents, many, many emails. And then we had about 40 phone conversations during that time period. It was a very intense time period. And he wanted to tell the truth. And he revealed that the CDC had committed fraud and was lying about connections specifically between vaccines, uh, the MMR vaccine and autism, and then thimerosal-containing vaccines. Thimerosal is a mercury-containing preservative, and also autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. And so we, I worked with Dr. Thompson, and I want him to go public with this story, which we did in August of 2014, and he submitted a, a released a, a statement saying that they had lied uh, specifically about the effect of the MMR vaccine in African American males, mm. and um, that is what brought on what the movie Vaxed. And um, because I was working in the background, and because I had recorded some of the phone conversations with Dr. Thompson, then. Uh, I was contacted by the producers of Vax very quickly after we went forward with the study. And so Vax was then released in 2016, and it has been quite the phenomenon. Many, many people have seen that movie. Uh, they've seen it online. They've seen it in the theaters. There was a big tour uh, that actually went through the United States, also in parts of the European, European Union and in Australia. And so that was quite uh, a phenomenon, and that has continued. Um, in the background, I still publish science. I've published about 13 different papers in epidemiology, specifically around vaccine injury. And one of my latest papers was a study where I looked at vaccinated children versus unvaccinated children. And for the health outcomes that we looked at, the vaccinated children were, uh, were unhealthy and less healthy than those children who were unvaccinated. And uh, so that paper came out in May 2020. And uh, since, since then, the paper has been downloaded off of the journal's website about uh, 180,000 times. And so it's made quite a splash in the scientific community. Uh, and there's more research to come. I'm, I'm continuing okay. to do research. I work with a colleague named Neil Miller, and we're still publishing research. We're still looking at data. And a lot of doctors have come forward with their practices and have said the same thing, that their unvaccinated children or their partially vaccinated children 
are healthier than those that are fully vaccinated using the CDC schedule. So I continue to do that research. Great, great. I, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to reading more of that. I, I read that paper that you were referring to, and that was something I was going to ask you about later on. But since we kind right. of already scratched that topic, let's maybe tell the listeners what um, what did the 2020 paper you published, um, what were your kind of your findings when looking at the data? Well, what we did is we looked at vaccinations in the first year of life. In the United States, using the CDC schedule, that's when the bulk of the vaccinations and most vaccines are given in the first month of the first year of life. And so that's 21 different separate vaccines or separate needle sticks that children receive through their first birthday. And so we looked at a, a group of patients that received no vaccines during that time versus those that received at least one vaccine during that time. And these were three medical practices where I actually had the doctor's data, the physical data that had been de-identified that you know, didn't have any patient identities, but we did have their vaccine records. And what we found was that uh, children who were vaccinated were twice as likely to later on in life receive a diagnosis of developmental delays that were um, over twice as likely to have recurring ear infections, uh, about four times as likely to be diagnosed with asthma. And then the one that was sort of on the cusp of being statistically significant was gastrointestinal disorders. And that seemed to be more related with the number of vaccines that a child received during their first birthday. And that became significant as we compared those that got lots of vaccines versus those that got no vaccines. And so it was a quite strong, um, the results for all four diagnoses, developmental delays, uh, asthma, ear infections, and gastrointestinal disorders were, were quite significant for all of the groups that we studied, males and females, uh, separately as well as together. And uh, so this, you know, we, we extended the study, we looked at numbers of vaccines, there seemed to be a correlation with those children that were receiving more vaccines being more likely to get these diagnoses. And also if they got the vaccines earlier, say if they got the vaccines before six months of age, then we would see more of a more evidence that they would get these diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a splash. Uh, we uh, had uh, kind of a hard time finding a journal that was willing to publish this but we found a journal called Sage Open Medicine, and the journal is actually indexed on the National Library of Medicine, so it's on PubMed. Uh, if you look it up on PubMed and look at type in my name, then it comes forth. And so we're very, very excited about that. And mm -hmm. and like I said before, it's made quite a splash. It's been downloaded over eight one hundred and eighty thousand times, and um, so it is. And and it hasn't been retracted yet. So a lot of papers that um, come up with, you know, when you have a controversial finding like that, a lot of papers get retracted. And so um, it's still standing firm and we're very excited about it. Yeah. Um, what do you think are some potential reasons or causes why the, the vaccinated children had a, a higher incidence of those conditions? Now, my, uh, just to give you my, uh, you know, compared to you, Relatively compared to yours, I'm completely uneducated about these things, but I have done quite a bit of research. I have written a book on autism um, and I have, you know, hundreds of scientific references there. And from 
what my research told me, and I don't necessarily have a pro or anti-vaccine agenda or stance, but um, I know there's, I've I've read through some, what some ingredients are in these vaccines. And these include things that are classified as known human carcinogens. So formaldehyde, they are, it contain aluminum, which we know is implicated in um, neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's disease for one, and autoimmunity for another that I can just think of the top of my head. There's a number of other kind of very questionable ingredients in these vaccines, which is um, even some some of the researchers that I've read uh, are calling out the use of, for example, aluminum in vaccines. So with that said, what do you, is your kind of uh, view on what, you know, how, how could the vaccines be contributing to these health issues for kids? I, th- I think there are multiple ways that these vaccines are creating sickness in our children. And one of the biggest issues is aluminum. In several countries, including the United States, the hepatitis B vaccine is recommended on the first day of life. The hepatitis B vaccine typically has uh, 250 micrograms of aluminum, which stimulates the immune system. And we're stimulating the immune system on the first day of life. And it really hasn't, it's not intact. It's not fully developed on the first day of life. And that is, that's a significant problem. When you look at the immune disruption that that causes uh, in a one day old, then it's, it's quite dynamic and it's quite profound, the type of damage that that alone can do. And then you look at the other components, you look at formaldehyde, uh, which is a toxin, which is a neurotoxin. When you look at polysorbate 80, which is like a detergent or a solvent that opens up the blood-brain barrier, then you're letting these components, especially aluminum, into the brain. And that's where you can cause neurodevelopmental disorders and and neurodegenerative disorders also in our elderly. Um, And then we're talking about live viruses and live viruses in many of the vaccines, especially the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, uh, can cause significant issues uh, especially if the child has an infection or has been previously infected, you, you know, in a sort of a recent time frame. You know, there are many, many different things that can go on. And really, if you break down mechanistically what has happened, this is one of the least studied areas of research in medicine that ever has taken into account. But if you look at the anecdotal information, you're overstimulating the immune system, you're creating autoimmunity you're creating reactions. Um, when you go back to the aluminum, uh, the, the uh, Christopher Exley uh, from Keele University in the United Kingdom found that aluminum was depositing in the brains of autistic children in levels that had, he had never seen before. Okay, And they were much, much higher than levels of non-autistic brains. Mm-hmm. He also saw the same thing in Alzheimer's disease. And these will um, the, the aluminum will accumulate as microparticles or nanoparticles in tissues that are immune cells. Their brain immune cells are called microglia and astroglia. Mm-hmm. And these, these immune cells will produce what, what are known as scars in the brain tissue. So they're actually damaging brain tissue. And so you get neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. So there are multiple things. There are multiple components that have not been sufficiently studied separately or together. So, and we've never looked at the administration of multiple vaccines at one time 
which happens routinely across the nation and across the world, excuse me, across the world. And so, you know, it's just understudied. But if we look at the components themselves, then it starts to make sense what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, there's definitely many potential causal mechanisms that I can even think of because, you know, if you disrupt the immune system in any way, um, we know that at least in autism, uh, there's very often a component of of immune dysregulation. And knowing that, you know, some 60, 70 or whatever percent of the immune cells are co-located in the gut, then that immune activation or dysregulation can immediately lead to gut dysfunction. And from, from there, you have all sorts of other things happening, food sensitivities, autoimmunity, and so on and so forth and so forth. So absolutely... And I agree with you, there's very little research being done on this that is, I think it's a little bit of a criminal kind of <laughs> act to, to, to do this to, the, to our children. Absolutely. And, and for so long, it's been classified as some type of mental disorder and only a neurological disorder. And instead, when you look at the prototypical child with autism, they do have gut issues, they do have autoimmunity, and that auto, there's a really strong connection between gut autoimmunity and brain autoimmunity. My son himself has a variant of Crohn's disease, and so we have to treat him for his gut issues, and he has got strong food sensitivities, and this has affected his brain. We've, we've actually looked at um, the, for the presence of antibodies that will attack the myelin sheath around nerve cells. And he's got very, very high levels of anti-myelin sheath antibodies. And so that will demyelinate, that will actually expose nerve tissue and damage nerve tissue as specifically in the brain. And so when you're looking at these children, they have, you know, they can be rewired. There are autistic children that completely recover. They're actually few and far between, but they it does happen. Yeah. But they're still actual damage that's being done in the brain. And I think that we really, really need to look at uh, some of the earlier findings by Andy Wakefield, where he was seeing gut problems, gut problems that preceded autism diagnoses in children, the MMR vaccine that preceded both of them in children. And we need to uncover that and we need to look at that and we need to overturn research that says that there was no connection between the MMR and autism because that's the polar opposite of what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's almost a little bit like, shut up, this topic is covered. You know, it's like the science is settled. Right. Let's look at, and I mean, so many researchers in, in autism are calling out how funding has gone for largely useless kind of research like classifications and things like that. And there's barely any research being done on, on gut dysfunction on, you know, there's so many things that could be done there. Um, Understanding how the, the gut, uh, the guts of autistic children are altered, what could be causal mechanisms. And, you know, I mean, like it just, you could rattle off 20 different things related to the gut that should be studied a hell of a lot more. Exactly. Exactly. And those people that are doing studies, are finding a, a lot of recovery of skill and a re- lot of recovery of function, a lot of um, calming down sort of the sort of the noise or the stress 
you know, when you're around a child or an adult with autism, you see that they react to stress differently and their level of stress from their environment is much, much higher. And so, you know, me as a parent, I spend a lot of time just working to calm my son's environment so he can exist, so he can thrive. Because if his environment is full of stress, you know, whether it's emotional stress, whether it's actual physical stress, then um, it's going to cause him great difficulty and his symptoms will manifest more, um, more frequently and he'll have more difficulties, even from a medical standpoint, you know, from that, from that stress. And those, there's, there's a researcher in the United States named James Adams, and he's actually oh, yeah. looking at fecal transplants. Um, and he's looking at the guts of these autistic children and replacing their gut flora with healthy gut flora. Mm. And what he's seeing is very, very profound increases in cognitive ability, very profound decreases in the level of stress in these children. And so, you know, I think these individuals that are looking at this particular and they're few and far between, but they're digging gold. They're really, really finding, um, that they can, help these children and they can help them cognitively and just sort of unlock their world. Um, And, you know, the more, you know, I would say at least 70 or 80% of what I do in relationship, my son is healing his gut and working Mm. on that. And it's like, it's been tipped out of balance and it's been permanently out of balance. And so it's very, very difficult to get it back into balance. And when it, when his gut issues are in check, he's a much, much happier guy. Well, you literally just quoted something that I wrote in my book is because the microbiota of the child stabilizes around two and a half to three years of age, it's much more difficult to then nudge it in a positive or negative direction. Um, but, you know, it's funny, you, J- James Adams, like I, 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 like the guys should be knighted or <laughs> sainted or something. He's doing amazing work. But even even like from from what i read in in some of those papers a lot of the research for that 2018 study that was published where they did the comprehensive dietary nutritional intervention a lot of that was with money from um a charity an autism charity where it was parents and people with with autistic family members paying for that so again his their push that group is pushing really hard but they're it looks like they're just severely under-resourced um, and there's no real money coming from the top, which is where it, you know, it should be. No, no, there is, you know, in the United States, we had what was called the Combating Autism Act. And that was to earmark billions of dollars towards autism research and mere pennies of that, if anything, have gone to the medical aspects of autism. There's a whole group that lobbies Congress on a routine basis, and it's like chipping away at granite. The group is called Autism is Medical, and they've been working for a number of years since the first Combating Autism Act back in, I think, in 2006. Uh, They've been working for many years to look at medical interventions, to look at vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations to see if there's a real link. And those, you know, sort of in the dark of night, these aspects of federal money are slipped out. They're taken away. You know, there was money earmarked for a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. And then all of a sudden in the bill that actually passed Congress, it was gone. It was taken out. There has been money to look at gut issues and it's always pilfered and it always goes to the scientists 
that are going to state the medical party line that no, it's a brain dysfunction, no, it's a brain issue. Uh, but even some of the chief research scientists that have been very, very mainstream, like uh, Simon Baron Cohen in the UK, has admitted there are gut issues in autism. There's gut dysbiosis in autism. And the dirty little secret that they'll never uh, admit was that Andy Wakefield was saying this 20 years ago. Yeah. Over 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, anytime that name Wakefield comes up, you know, people people are, are have been conditioned to recoil. Uh, you know, anything that you say connected to Andrew Wakefield, unless it's to disparage him, is then you are kind of like some type of charlatan or some, you know. That's kind of that's right. Part. That's right. It's the it's the ultimate in identity politics. Yeah. And, you know, you you invoke something like that, then all of a sudden you're lumped with, you know, some type of lunatic fringe. And, you know, I think we owe such a great debt of gratitude to Dr. Wakefield and what he did and what he advanced. Um, you know, there are. The, these these are non-mainstream techniques. These are usually integrated physicians. A lot of it is not covered by insurance. But what he uncovered really unlocked a world for many, many children and adults, you know, worldwide because he exposed this particular issue. And he, you know, because of him, my son was not vaccinated after 15 months. And I do not know what would have happened because he was react even we go back and look at his medical record records he was reacting severely as soon as he got vaccinated yeah. you know even in his earlier vaccines we saw multiple problems he did not get ear infections until his 6 months vaccines and he basically between 6 and 15 months was a walking ear infection and that did not stop until we stopped vaccinated mm. okay so uh just to to kind of bring it back to the topic of vaccines now we are told <laughs> that the adverse events are one in a million with vaccines. What, what, is, what is the actual kind of closer to the truth number? Well, I want to use the government's numbers because they are the ones that are telling us that vaccine injuries are one in a million. But the CDC actually funded a study in 2011 called the Lazarus Study. Uh, and in, um, in these in this particular study, the researchers looked at medical records of individuals that received vaccines over three years. I think the period of study was 2006 to 2009. And this was a uh, medical group, a, a group of clinics called the Harvard Pilgrim Medical Health uh, Healthcare Collaborative. And, and they followed literally millions of vaccines. So they, they looked at a population of 375,000 people who received over 1 million vaccines over that three-year time period. It included children. It included adults. It was anybody in these clinics that received vaccines. And what they did was they automated the reporting system for vaccine injuries. And when they did that, they found that for every one vaccine that was given, um, the chance of having a vaccine injury was one in 39. Okay, so having some type of adverse event for every 39 vaccines that were given, one of those individuals would have the, uh, the adverse event. And so it's not one in a million, it's one in 39. And if you look closely, then you also have to factor in that many individuals are getting more than one vaccine. If they're getting annual flu shots, 
And if you're continuing to get vaccines, then your chances of having a vaccine injury per person is about one in 10. So Mm -hmm. some type of adverse event, it might be mild, it might be major, you know, um, about about 20% of all vaccine injuries are leading to long-term problems. And so, you know, one in one in a million couldn't be further than the truth. Now, these these researchers reported back to the CDC, and as soon as CDC looked at their findings, they cut the funding of the project and they no longer retail. It actually says in black and white in the Lazarus study, you can see it online, just Google Lazarus study vaccine injury. And it will say that the CDC no longer returned this researcher's phone calls. And so the project was discontinued and really never saw the light of day. It's buried somewhere on the Internet. It was never published in the open literature. They prevented it from being published in the open literature. You know, that's something that I'm trying to FOIA right now to see how it was actually buried by the CDC. Uh, But it was, you know, this is real research and it was done with non-biased researchers that were from mainstream medicine, and they saw that the rate of injury was one in 39. It's not one in a million. Yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> that's pretty staggering. But uh, for, for I know a lot of, and this is, there's so many things that are people are not aware of. Can you explain to folks listening, I'm sure many will not know that, can you tell them what what is the, vaccine injury compensation program? And since when has that been kind of going on? And what does that actually do in terms of protecting pharmaceutical companies? Okay, so the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program is a program that started um, basically in 1988. It was a part of legislation in the United States that was called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And what this does is it removes the ability to sue vaccine manufacturers for damages for vaccine injury. So it takes them out of the equation. Vaccine manufacturers back in the 1980s were complaining that they lost a significant amount of money, specifically because people were being uh, injured and children were being injured by the DPT vaccine. And so they threatened to stop making the vaccine if this legislation was not passed. And so the manufacturers started by holding uh, Congress over a barrel and saying, we won't make vaccines and all these horrible infectious diseases will come back unless you pass this act and and remove our liability. And so when you participate in the act, you actually file a claim and you submit medical records. However, you, you are petitioning against the federal government, the federal government and federal attorneys from the Department of Justice will oppose you in your particular case. And then it's a long protracted process to see whether the government will uh, concede that you had a vaccine injury. It's almost like a court proceeding. In fact, the, uh, the person that presides over the proceeding is called a special master who is actually a judge in the federal system. Mm. And then that judge in the federal system will adjudicate and say, is this a real vaccine injury or not? More often than not, they rule against the petitioners. They rule against the the children who have had vaccine injuries. And so you do not get compensation. It's supposed to be a speedy process, but it's not. It's a very long, protracted process. My family was in vaccine court for 16 years. And then we received no money 
whatsoever for my son's vaccine injuries. And it was because of the statute of limitations. We had three years to file uh, regarding my son's vaccine injury. And for his earlier vaccines, we were out of that three-year window. And so they said that we could not get compensated. And it was a very, very frustrating process. Uh, we could have filed on time, but we didn't even know that the program exists. This is a dirty little secret. And even with those few injuries that do get compensated, the compensation program has paid over $4 billion since its inception in the late 1980s. So people are uh, being injured by vaccines. The government is conceding that they are being injured by vaccines. And there have been multiple cases of children who have autism, who have been had other diagnoses that have been compensated by vaccines or, or by, by this vaccine court. And so it's very frustrating. It's, it's more who you know than what you know. It's more, um, and, and we had expert witnesses. Our expert witnesses were eviscerated by the special master. Uh, at one point, the special master um, uh, accused one of our, our witnesses of committing fraud. Jeez. And so many people that could act as expert witnesses will not do it for you because it can be a black mark on their career if they represent somebody that is purporting that they have a vaccine injury. And so it's very, very difficult to get witnesses. Again, a 16-year costly process. There have been petitioners in vaccine court that have spent over um, $100,000 just for that particular case. And these are families that are barely getting, getting by, that are barely being able to pay their own medical bills or their bills for special education for their, their children. And to put that on top of them, it's, it's horrible. It is just mm -hmm. devastating. So I recommend, you know, especially with autism, they don't fund that. I just, I tell people not to waste their time. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of sickening. And it, it also, um, well, just logically, right. If, if a, a farm, a bunch of pharmaceutical companies suddenly, ha are, you know, can be held responsible for um, the products that are injected into kids with, you know, like uh, uh, not even fully formed blood brain barriers, you know, up to the age of six months, for example, then what sort of quality control checks will they have in place? Which kind of leads me to the next question. Can you tell for those that are unaware now, I'm sure a lot of people were, were unaware of some of the things that are put in vaccine, pretty sinister kind of chemicals, even for the most pro-vaccine person that has a brain. But what are the actual safety tests for a typical vaccine like Brian? The safety tests are usually short-term studies that would involve a, a small number of suspects, suspect, excuse me, uh, Freudian slip, small number of <laughs> subjects that were in the vaccine safety trial, and then they're, they, they are never really adequately tested for long-term injuries. You know, over a period, if you look at somebody who receives a vaccine and then they go for a period of, say, 12 months at time, it, it will take longer periods of time for a lot of neurodevelopmental and a lot of autoimmune disorders 
to fully ramify. So when you look at vaccine injury, it can take longer than 12 months for these injuries to ramify. And also what they're doing is they never really use a true placebo control. Whenever you run any experiment, you have to have a control group that doesn't receive the vaccine and then a experimental group that does receive the vaccine. That's just science 101. But instead, they look at individuals that have received other vaccines, you know, like the DTaP vaccine or the meningococcal meningitis vaccine is often a control. And instead of doing a true no vaccine control, they're looking at other vaccines that contain aluminum, other vaccines that have dubious safety profiles that have caused vaccine injuries. And they're saying, well, if our new vaccine causes the same amount of vaccine injuries as these old vaccines, then it must be safe. And this is a tolerable amount of injuries. Um, this is just not acceptable science and not acceptable medical practice. And there's no way that you can differentiate between a no vaccine control or what we call a saline placebo, where somebody is just getting an injection of a salt solution into their arm versus that those that get the vaccine. And so this is very, very bad science. They're, they they do not withhold the vaccines from the control group. They say, oh, it's unethical to withhold vaccines because vaccines are so great. Mm. And even though they know that they could find individuals that would opt out of vaccines, this unvaccinated control group does exist. I've seen it. And you can find it in the general population. They just don't do the test because they know what they're going to find out. They know that there's going to be a significant amount of vaccine injuries above the baseline if they do the test properly. Yeah, and what is the vaccination rate in the U.S.? It's like something like 95%, is it? It's about 95%. So if you look at that, if we're a country of uh, 330 or so million population, what is that? So that's at least 15 million 15 people million. that are unvaccinated. You can do a vax-unvax study. The CDC could do a vax-unvax study right away. But they leave that up to individuals like myself who struggle because we don't have the access to the large databases that CDC has. The CDC has what's called the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which is a database that has over nine medical records for over nine million patients. And some of those patients are unvaccinated. I've seen it. I've been in the database before. They allowed me in for a very, very short period of time. I know there are unvaccinated children in those records and you could do these studies, but they will not open that up to the public, despite the fact that about 20 million taxpayer dollars go to maintain that database every year. So we're paying for that database, but we don't have access to it. Yeah, it's crazy. What do you think is the underlying agenda? Is it just to make money for the pharmaceutical companies? I think that there's a lot of that, that the, the CDC has a financial state in vaccines. They invest $4 billion in the Vaccines for Children program every year. So they're looking at uptake of vaccines so they can be reimbursed. And also they um, spend about a half a billion dollars marketing vaccines every year. It contrasts that to... Uh, about $40 million that is spent in back, $40 million with an M in vaccine safety every year. And so you can see where their priorities are. Their priorities are with vaccine promotion and vaccine uptake. And so it is a big financial enterprise. 
But they also have a lot to lose if all of a sudden they come forward, if somebody from the CDC like William Thompson comes forward and says that vaccines are harming children, then they have many, many years of carnage at their hands that they have to account for. And so they're always going to protect sort of this vaccinology religion because if they don't, and if that edifice starts to fall down, then they are culpable for millions and millions of vaccine injuries in the United States. Just that injury from the MMR vaccine, if you look at the movie Vax and look at how many African-American males were affected by that, I estimate that 200,000 African-American males from, from the period that that fraud was perpetrated, 2001, to the present, have been diagnosed with autism who could have gotten that from the getting the MMR vaccine on time, 200 million or 200,000. So that's a huge number of people that have been effect, affected by the fact that the CDC, the Department of Health and Human Services are lying to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, a, uh, and, God, like the, I'm having a, I'm having a bit of a brain fart for the the the, the name of the author of the book, oh, Doctor Thomas Cowan. He, he has a short book called um, uh, uh, "Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illnesses." And right, right. Yeah, yeah. So in there, he talks about um, how some of the having some of the like, let's say chickenpox or measles as a child it in a way trains the adaptive uh or the humoral immune system so we are more capable of fighting pathogens as we grow right and i think he looked at i don't know if, if he's looked at your research or something but he, he at least in his practice he said that um, a lot of kids that are vaccinated do do tend to um uh, you know, develops these kind of more immune mediated conditions. So you, you were talking about, you know, uh, asthma and he talks about autoimmunity as well being kind of, so uh, it, it basically these insults to the immune system may predispose us to more immune mediated autoimmune type of conditions. Uh, so the question for you, Brian, is how bad are these diseases or viruses that we are being immunized again? against as opposed to the actual what's worse having measles or chicken pox or or getting the vaccine for those these the fact that we're that we're vaccinating for these seemingly mild infectious diseases especially the chicken pox and the mumps um there, there's there, the profile of individuals that get these diseases, and even the measles. Even if you look at rubella and rubeola, um, the the outcomes of these, even prior to vaccination, the level of mortality for um, for measles. If somebody, if a child uh, had the measles, the level of mortality was about one in ten thousand. Okay, and usually there were complications involved in that. And I've gone back to the medical records. The measles vaccine was introduced in the United States in 1963. And if you look at the mortality for the measles in 1963, it was about one in 10,000. And so, you know, there, there have been erroneous reports back when the measles outbreaks occurred and they had the big furor over Disneyland. They were saying that the rate of deaths was about four in a thousand 
they were off by a, a factor of 40. It's actually one in 10,000. Uh, these were trumped up medical records. And so they were fabricating records to, to encourage the uptake of the MMR vaccine. But if you look at the dangers of, uh, these, of these vaccines and what's happening, the mumps vaccine actually doesn't provide full protection against the mumps. And what's happening is these these individuals are more susceptible to get the mumps when they are adults. Mm -hmm. And when they're adults, that that ends up causing in in males swelling of the testes. It can cause infertility. It can cause many, many different issues. And but these are diseases that are much, much more mild in childhood. But if they're if you get them later on in life and that's what we're seeing delays in the mumps, we're seeing delays also in pertussis. And they're causing many more problems in these adults, and they're causing long-term issues beyond the actual infectious disease itself. Um, then you, if you look at you know, the dirty little secret about the chickenpox vaccine is that if you're exposed to the chickenpox vaccine, you're also susceptible to get shingles later on in life. You know, they say only the chickenpox virus will cause um shingles later on in life, but the vaccine has a live virus in it. And so if you get the varicella vaccine, then you are setting yourself up to get shingles later on in life. And what we're finding is that now children that are even approaching their teen years are coming down with shingles. Those children that are getting the chicken pox vaccine, rather than having a natural infection, are getting the shingles much, much earlier in life than those children that just had the natural infection. Right, right. And is there any, in your view vaccines that are actually protect, protecting against a serious viral infection? When you look at those that protect against serious viral infections, I would say um, if you look at the pneumococcal uh, vaccine and the meningococcal vaccine, but the fact is that these are treatable diseases. Yes, you know, pneumococcal pneumonia and meningococcal pneumonia leading to meningitis are actually very, very serious. But if you look at the safety profile of these particular vaccines, it's not good. Mm. You have a lot of people with the Minactra vaccine and and the other types of meningococcal pneumonia vaccines going into anaphylaxis. And so nobody has ever done a real risk-benefit profile of these particular vaccinations. You know, when you have a young adult go into anaphylaxis, it is a serious vaccine injury and it can be debilitating. It can lead to death. And so... You know, and then you look at the very, very low incidence of meningitis and um, and meningococcal pneumonia in that particular age group. Then you have to. They nobody has ever done a real risk benefit analysis. It's something I want to do personally, mm-hmm. and look at the number of vaccine injuries that are being reported in reputable databases. In the United States, we have what's called VARES which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, but that is woefully inadequate. Most injuries are never reported to this VAERS database. So we need actual databases so we can do a risk profile. How many how many adolescents and, and college-age uh, individuals are getting meningococcal pneumonia? How many are having adverse reactions to the vaccine? That study needs to be done, and it hasn't been done. And why do you think these um, adverse events are so underreported? Many people don't even know, many medical practitioners don't even know that VAERS exists. Um, And even those that know that the reporting system exists 
they will they will pass the buck to the patient. And a patient that has suffered an adverse event is less likely to report. They're more likely to get over that adverse event and just go on with life. Um, even with my son's vaccine injury, I didn't know that VARES existed. Nobody told me mm. that VARES existed. And it was only my mom, who used to be a public health nurse, that said, oh, we have to report this to VARES, you know, because this is where vaccine injury should be reported. But if if I didn't have a connection, if I didn't have a familial connection to the medical industry, I would have never known that. And yeah. certainly the doctor, we we asked her to report it to VARES. And she said, well, I, I don't even know if it's a vaccine injury. And we said, well, you know, that's a that's a, um, a passive reporting system and you don't have to determine that it's actually caused. We want it reported anyway. And she would refuse. OK, mm-hmm. so many, many practitioners, they've seen vaccine injuries. They've never reported anything to VAERS. So usually you're looking at about one percent of the actual rate of vaccine injuries. Right, right, right. Wow. And what about um, in terms of how doctors talk to parents, um, you know, about vaccination and in terms of parents, especially in the States, refusing and then they're kind of given the 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 hard sell um are our parents really given a choice in in the states what is the kind of your view of that there are several types of practitioners and if you look at them they roughly fall into two groups there's one group that is going to be the hard sell and that you may if you don't vaccinate and schedule you may get kicked out of their medical practice Okay, that's sort of the extreme polar extreme of the hard sell. And then there's another group that is much more friendly to non-vaccinating patients and non parents of non-vaccinating children that will describe the risk and benefit profile. Um, but a lot of a lot of families, you know, back in 1998, we barely had the internet. We had had the internet for three years. And so we weren't we were making medical decisions based on, you know, what we could read in books and all of the books were saying, go ahead and vaccinate your child, vaccinate on schedule. So we wanted to be the model pa- parents and we never we never really questioned the vaccination process. And we never, quite frankly, had a conversation with our doctor that there was even a risk from vaccination. I didn't know that risk actually exists. And when I thought of risk, I also thought of the mantra that I was being given in the mainstream media that, oh, vaccine injury is one in a million. It will never happen to my child. Um, But and the practitioners that are very quietly um, giving parents a choice are becoming a more rare breed because they're being persecuted by the medical profession. More and more medical boards are going after practitioners that are recommending alternative schedules and actually having frank discussions about vaccine injury. We hear about that more and more. I can think of Dr. Ken Stoller in in California, Dr. Bob Sears in California, Dr. Paul Thomas now recently in Oregon, where they've actually gone out after their license or suspended their license because they are either, they're not recommending alternative schedules, but they're actually giving parents a choice. That's all that it takes. And then all of a sudden you have a medical board and you have um, anonymous, there, there are trolls, internet trolls, and they're reporting these, these physicians. They don't have to be patients of the physicians. They're making up reports. They're reports that have been fabricated. Um, I checked with the medical board and 
actually uh, did a public information request and a medical board official admitted to me, oh, this individual um, gets many, many fabricated uh, complaints every month. You know, uh, I don't want to name the individual, but it was in California and, and there, are, there are entities, there are pharmaceutical entities and AstroTurf entities that are all they do is they just file medical complaints against doctors that are, are coming out against the CDC schedule. And so, you know, these doctors that are more willing to listen to parents are becoming fewer and fewer. Wow. And what do you, Jesus, and what do you think is kind of the, the way to, to fight against this kind of astroturfing and just straight up trolling of these uh, practices? I, I think that our final recourse is going to be the courts and that there needs to be some type of punitive action against individuals that are filing false claims against physicians. Uh, there needs to be some type of court action against social media giants that are, um, are censoring and taking away our First Amendment rights to post on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, you name it. You know, we're all seeing censorships and we're, we're all seeing entities that are, are producing good scientific information and becoming deplatformed. I just yeah. talked to a colleague of mine who all she did was she shared a link to a, uh, a, a paper on PubMed. And for that, she was suspended from Facebook for seven days. She, all she was doing was reporting science. And because the science was, uh, they construed it as anti-vaccine, then she was suspended from Facebook for seven days. And that is, that's preposterous. You know, science is science. You can never say the science is settled. Science is amorphous. It's always moving. Mm. It's always going forward. And so all these monikers that we get about settled science and settled medicine and, oh, I trust science, you know, they're, they're actually preposterous sayings mm. because as a scientist, you know, we're always learning. We're always evolving. We're always changing. And so we need to go with the latest science. And you can never, there is no such thing as settled science beyond perhaps gravity. Yeah, and even with gravity fields, we're learning something new every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if, if it was, if that wasn't the case, we'd still be using arsenic as a cure-all and leaching for what ails. Yeah. So exactly. What, yeah, Brian. One final question um, before you can tell folks where they can find out more about your papers and so on. Um, what about in terms of brainwashing, propaganda, fear mongering? What about the parents of vaccinated children that are now? being brainwashed that other kids being unvaccinated puts their kids at risk. I thought at least, and this is, I'm just trying to figure out this for myself as well. I thought that those kids being vaccinated protected them from whatever. Um, why, why are parents now being taught to go, uh, you know, to attack their fellow parents with, with this kind of misinformation? We're being we're being told that our our um, children are super spreaders that are carriers that us ourselves we're super spreaders and carriers. Um, you know, if we haven't followed the CDC adult vaccination schedule, um, and they're they're everything is about herd immunity or community immunity. And the fact is that is that if ninety five percent of the children in the United States are getting vaccinated, we have achieved community immunity. And we have achieved herd immunity is actually a concept that has nothing to do with vaccination. 
It has everything to do with natural infection. And it was done, her immunity was established as a concept in the 1920s for measles infections in the Boston area. It's either Boston or Baltimore, I can't remember. But um, it had nothing to do with vaccination. And the actual levels of herd immunity were not 95% vaccination. They were 60% infection. And that's when they saw infection rates dramatically decrease. It's just part of the natural evolution of these viruses. And so, you know, when, if their vaccines work, then they should have no problem, right? If vaccines were not leaky, you know, and they can't even guarantee that these COVID vaccine variants are preventing transmission. That was not tested in the clinical trials, the, the woefully inadequate clinical trials. So, you know, they're, they're pushing community immunity and they want to take punitive action against people that are not getting the COVID-19 vaccine by excluding them from large sporting events or excluding them from facets of society, which hopefully will be voted down. And, and the federal government has said they will not enforce this in the United States, fortunately. But truly, if vaccines worked, then somebody who is fully vaccinated should be able to interact with an unvaccinated person person with zero chance of infectious disease, but they don't work. Yeah. They don't work. And that that is a real problem. And it has nothing to do with being around a vaccinated or an unvaccinated person, it has everything to do with the vaccine construct and the fact that we're being fed a lie about these magical cures. Yeah, wasn't that um, outbreak in Disneyland that you were talking about, wasn't a, a large portion of those, weren't a, 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 a ton of those kids vaccinated? A significant portion of them were vaccinated in the United States with the MMR vaccine. It, I've seen reports up to 80%. I know that's not true. It's probably more like 37% right, were right. vaccinated. But this strain was, was a strain that wasn't indigenous to the United States. It was an imported strain. And so therefore, the MMR vaccine provided inadequate protection against, you know, these, it provided in some patients, it provided some level of protection and they were probably produced neutralizing antibodies and didn't get sick, but it did leak into the vaccinated. So to say that this was an issue or a disease of the unvaccinated is a complete misnomer. Okay. Okay. Well, th thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Brian. Before we go, can you tell the listeners where they can find out more about you, your work and, you know, all that good stuff? Social media. The best, the best resource to find uh, some of my work is childrenshealthdefense.org. Okay, I'm a board member at Children's Health Defense, all one word, childrenshealthdefense.org. And a lot of my articles have been published in their publication called The Defender. And also, uh, if you want to um, look at the recent Vax Unvax study that I did with Neil Miller, you just Google Sage open medicine, vax, unvax, and the study will pop up. The study we'll will pop. It's just on yeah. the Sage Open Medicine Journal. We'll have the link in the in the show notes. What what about um uh your future anything any teasers you want to give us about any future uh, papers coming out? I do have um another study that is coming out um hopefully by the end of the summer. It takes a while for the publication. I'm in the peer review process right mm. now. Uh, it's very similar to this earlier study that I did with uh, with Neil Miller, and uh, so only it extends it to other diagnoses that we didn't have the numbers to consider in our mm -hmm. earlier paper. 
so we're we're looking at that. I'm also, um, you know, I tried. It's weird. I tried to publish a work uh, refuting some of the science that said that the flu vaccine was protective against COVID. And I actually did a commentary on a paper on frontiers and public health. And that commentary was taken down. It was actually, it was never retracted. It was actually taken down off of the website um, because I didn't, I didn't refute. I never said that the flu vaccine wasn't protective against COVID. I just refuted the statistical method of a paper that they had published. And so I am fighting that right now, and I'm hoping to get that that particular commentary reinstated. Okay. Well, best of luck with it. I know it's an uphill battle with all of these things. Peer, even peer, I'm sure the peer review process for you must be extra rigorous, right? Absolutely. It takes months and months. Yeah. Um, actually, just one final note. Um, that uh, your previous paper in uh, the 2020 paper, I saw that an article, but one of the authors on the uh, paper was, I think, William Fry. I think William Fry is his name. And um, the article, the, it was a 21-page paper, very large. I, I haven't read it. I just downloaded it before we got on the call. But they were talking, at the title was something to do with how aluminum, uh, can the, the, the causal, uh, the, 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 the ways aluminum, the causal mechanisms for aluminum uh, as implications in Alzheimer's disease and uh, autism. So I'm mm. looking forward to reading about some of the, and yeah, they were citing your paper uh, for that study. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, for that paper. So I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of understanding more about the causal mechanisms, how aluminum, and in the end, and just a final thing, in the end, they, they, they themselves say that they would, their recommendation would be to remove um, you know, aluminum from, from vaccinations. So I'm That's glad. a strong recommendation. That's great. Yeah. Because That's great. William, I wasn't yeah. aware of that paper. Yeah. I'm, I'm William Fry, you know, he's done a ton of papers on, on autism. So I kind of, he's one of the most prominent guys. So, and there was another, I forgot the name of the guy. Um, it's in my, it's in my book. Uh, the, the Italian name. Uh, they they have a lab as well in the states for. The oh, test I for, know who you're talking about. I forgot their name too. Uh, Voidani, Voidani, in Voidani, one, yes, right, Aristo right. Voidani. Okay. So in in one of their papers, they were also like, you know, does it make like given how much how underdeveloped the immune system is and the blood brain barrier of these kids, does it make sense to be injecting this much mercury into our children? So I'm glad that respected researchers are starting to call this bullshit out. Because we're literally <laughs> we're literally injecting some of the most toxic substances on earth into our children. Parents are not even aware of it, and um, it, it's it's a little bit of, of at this point we know we have so much information and data that it's a little bit criminal for this to continue. You know, um, exactly. Yeah. So, Brian, uh, you know, you, you're doing you're doing amazing work. Um, Thank you. Th it's a thankless job, and I'm glad there's people out there like you. You know, brave folks to. So thank you so much for the work that you do and, you know, go Godspeed, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been wonderful spending time with you. Yeah. Thank you.